1: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well. I have an update for you guys if you've been following my apartment journey. I haven't expressed this on Instagram or YouTube yet. I haven't shared this, but... I have found my next apartment. I'm moving in March, so I have some time to get things together here, sell some things, just kind of, I don't know, not like get rid of a lot of things, but pare down my clothes, my shoes, things like that. Um, just kind of take stock of what I have and what will fit in the next space, all of that. But it's been a really, really crazy process. You guys know if you've seen other people's apartment journeys or if you yourself have looked for apartments in New York, it's very fast. It's like you see a space you identify it as okay this will work and then things move so quickly after that you've just submitted an application almost the same day if you want to ensure your space in line you know you want to make sure that you have a good chance you almost need to just run home get your money together get your documents your tax returns all the things and submit it ASAP, so that is exactly what I did. I'm posting a vlog on Monday showing you guys the actual unit I'm going with if you want to see a visual of what I'm talking about, but I've seen six apartments in my hunt this time in various parts of New York and various price points, various sizes and uh, just situations of, you know, whether it be a doorman building or a non-doorman building, all the stuff. And I'm going to go into detail in my vlog, but I saw this one space and I just had this feeling. It really is a feeling because a lot of times I'll see a space and I'm like, you know, I could make this work, but I immediately walked into this place and felt this rush of, I can do so many fun things in here. And that's exactly how I felt when I found this current apartment that I'm sitting in right now. I Actually, a lot of my friends weren't really sure about this one. They were like, when I sent them the listing, they weren't entirely sure of how I was going to transform it, but I knew. I had a vision, and when I walked into this space, the one that I eventually went with from the six that I saw, I just had a feeling. I knew I needed to submit an application right away. It was the first that I saw on this given day, and I saw two others afterwards, and in the other two apartments I saw, I just could not stop thinking about that first one, so I immediately filled out the application, submitted it that night. And then the next morning was, I had the worst night's sleep ever because I was so stressed about the apartment and just kept convincing myself that it wasn't going to work, that I was going to not get it, that somehow it's a management company that owns the place. So I guess they were the ones that really looked at the application. And I just had this crushing sense of imposter syndrome almost, like I don't deserve it. Or like, you know, being on my own and being a woman that is single, living on her own. I've, you know, not really been met with judgment per se, but just having to prove myself a little extra, I think, in the eyes of people that are renting to me because obviously they'd prefer to give an apartment to someone that, you know, has two incomes, like, or I suppose like two people that have their own incomes that together have this joint, like very solid And being a self-employed person, there are more hoops that I have to jump through in order to prove myself. So I was really in my head about it, so stressed, like could not sleep, got like five hours of sleep this night, went to the gym the next morning, was obsessively checking my phone, like so nervous. And finally, and it wasn't even like it was a really quick process, but obviously every second felt like a microwave second, you know? And I get home to an email that I was approved, and I'm so, so relieved just because I'm a very high-stressed individual when it comes to apartment hunting. I always have been every single time. I just get so, so, so stressed about making the wrong decision or getting rejected or something being taken before I'm like – It's just, I'm not wired for the stress of apartment hunting in New York because it is so quick of a process. Like I can't wait for the days when I might move to the suburbs and I'm looking for a house and maybe I can take like two days to think about it or something like that. But anyway, I'm really happy with how things went because I got the apartment. I'm moving in March. Like I said, I think I said, I'm like kind of losing track of what I've told you guys and what I've told my friends and family, but I have some time to kind of go through everything here, see what I want to bring with me, what's gonna fit, what I need to sell, and all of that. So I have some time, which is nice. So like now that I have the apartment, now I have time, which I guess is good. It's a good thing because every other time I've very much been lease to lease in terms of I'll find the place. I have to move like next week. But this time I don't have to do that. So that's great. Anyway, um I'm gonna not really say too much more because I have a whole vlog coming out on Monday showing you guys the space, showing you guys the other ones that I looked at as well. So I'm not going to share too, too much more, but I'm excited. And I just wanted to share that with you guys. You guys are my special people. My podcast listeners have always been in a very special part of my heart because you guys have been with me for so long and you listen to my stories and that means the world to me. So I just wanted to share that before I get into today's stories, today's thoughts and interesting things I'm going to talk about But yeah, I am excited for this new chapter, for this new project of decorating this new space. I'm going to try to start as fresh as I can. Like, obviously, there's some pieces that I just love in my space that I want to bring with me, namely my furniture. Like, most of the furniture is coming, but I want to, like, you know, maybe put up some wallpaper or just do something different with the wall decor and maybe get a new colorful rug or something. Like, when you see the space, you'll know that it's just meant to be for me, like, I was reading the comments of my last vlog where I showed a few apartments and people were like, Katie, you know, obviously everyone was so kind and positive, but people were like, okay, I'm seeing these apartments you're looking at and thinking of your space now. And it's just like your space now is so unique. Like, why would you trade that for, you know, nice luxe buildings? It's really a feeling you get when you walk into those luxe buildings. Like there hasn't been many people that have lived there or it's a really new development in a new part of town that." Up until like 30 years ago was like a field, which I learned. I was doing some reading. I, this isn't today's story. I might do some more research on this and talk about it at a later date. But Battery Park, if you guys know that part of Manhattan, it's downtown, kind of like financial district area. I saw this photo of Battery Park area in the 80s. So I guess like 40 years ago, it was literal wheat fields. Like there was nothing but fields in this area still in the 80s. And now if you go there, I went there last week when my friends lives there, it's all new builds, like a lot of new builds and very like gorgeous, but just so Like, it's just too nice for me, if that makes sense. Like, I need something a bit rough around the edges, something that has been lived in. And I don't know what that says about me, but I like charm. I like something that has a story, you know? So this new space, I can't wait for you guys to see it because it definitely has that. But it's a good balance because you can tell it's clean and I'm not going to have... Issues with mice and such because it is a well taken care of building, but you can tell the unit itself. You're like, what stories does this place hold? You know, the current apartment I'm in used to be an old shipping building. So, you know, if you see my apartment in videos and such, you can see that there's like different parts of it that are very clearly like, what was that used for? You know, it has some question marks. And that is exactly how this new unit is that I'm going to be moving into, which I'm so excited about. Okay, I'm going to stop talking um, about it because I don't want to give too much away. But it's in a really, really good part of town that's like very steeped in history and so, so many stories to tell in this neighborhood. So I'm excited. Okay, it's just going to inspire me further. Also, you can like literally hear a pin drop. So it's very quiet, which is exactly what I need. And I'm thrilled. So we'll talk about it more in March when I actually move. I have like the whole month of February to get my ducks in a row. But thank you for coming along on this journey with me. I'm excited. New chapter. Love it. So in the meantime, let's get into today's episode. I have some stories to share. I have some secrets to share as well. It's kind of like a smorgasbord of things this episode. And it's interesting because I remember I have a very distinct memory of the first time I heard this word smorgasbord, which it's borrowed from Swedish. And I actually looked it up. It's uh, defined as a buffet with many small dishes from smorgas, which means sandwich and board, which means table. Smorgas is from Swedish smör, which means butter and gas, which means goose, And it's a reference to pieces of butter which float to the surface of milk when churned. But I think of smorgasbord as being kind of like, you know, a collection of things that might not be related, but because they're together are related, you know, because it's all in like one podcast or in one. I remember this one substitute teacher. This is the first time I heard the word. I had this beloved substitute teacher in elementary school. And one of my teachers was on maternity leave and she was just a constant figure for like honestly most of the year. I think that this teacher had had some complications or something because we had this sub for so much longer than I'd ever had a sub and she would just lay all the papers. Like Remember the stacks of papers and you would like every um, table would have their turn to go up and grab like one from each pile and that was like the classwork for the day or whatever. It was like various subjects all at once and we choose one paper on like one subject and then the other paper was on another subject but the expectation was we would just complete all this classwork. Because the sub wasn't really – she was teaching, but, you know, that was our main teacher's job. So when we had the sub, you guys remember substitute teachers? They would just be like, okay, guys, the goal is to get all this done by the end of the day. If you have any questions, ask me. But I'm not really here to necessarily, like, teach a lesson. So she would call it a smorgasbord. And I could never pronounce it. And I really didn't even know what it meant. But now all these years later, I'm like, that's kind of how I live my life. Like, I feel like my days are a collection of all these different things together. It's a smorgasbord. Like, if you think about it as like a buffet, that is what my podcast is, really. It's like a collection of stories and things. And sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. But today, yeah, it's a smorgasbord. A little bit of everything. We're going to share some secrets that I found on Reddit, um, all anonymous, but little stories that I found that I thought were heartwarming, but then also, honestly, a very tragic tale I'm going to be sharing, so later on the episode, if you are interested in, like, the human condition of it all, and how, honestly, it's kind of a, a negative that turns into a positive, because it's a true story from history, something that was really grisly, but... The truth of it is actually people aren't as bad as you think they are. So the ending is sweet in the sense of, wow, people aren't that bad. So if you are kind of going through your days these days, especially in the dead of winter, if it's cold where you are and you're like, you know, people are just horrible. This will actually change your perspective a little bit and see, okay, maybe people aren't as bad as I think they are sometimes. Like there is goodness left in this world, you know?
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie.
1: So it's a smorgasbord, let's get into it. So I follow this forum on Reddit called True Off My Chest and it's pretty much where people come in and anonymously share things from their life and just like get these secrets off of their chest. And it gives you an opportunity to be like, wow, me too. You know, like this person had this struggle. Oh my gosh, I had the same thing. Maybe I should share and get get my feelings off my chest. It's actually like a really, really good method of doing so, kind of sharing anonymously, getting it out there and seeing what people say. Because a lot of people will agree with you and it makes you feel validated, you know, in your ways of doing things. So I'm going to share a few of these true off my chest anonymous just little posts, okay? So the first one, which is actually kind of interesting coming from me sharing this because I am an influencer by trade, I guess. You know, I post content like that. But someone said, they confessed, they said, I pretend I'm an influencer, so I'll do basic chores. And that's like the subject line. Then they go into detail. They said, for the past three months, I've been pretending to be an influencer, I tend to go through serious bouts of depression. I won't shower or eat. I'll just lay in bed and rot. However, I've recently discovered that if I record myself and pretend that I'm talking to an audience, I'm able to motivate myself to get ready and go to work. This also goes for my chores. I'll do a time-lapse video of myself doing the dishes, laundry, and everything else that I'll need to do. I don't post these videos anywhere and I don't show these videos to anyone. They're really just fun to look back on and makes me happy to see that I've accomplished things while feeling shitty about life." And the comments themselves, I mean, people are just so supportive on these posts, which I think is part of it. This is a commenter. This is brilliant. "'I used to wear a tiara with little shiny crystals on it when I did housework. I don't know where it went. Maybe I should get a new one.'" Someone um, commented on that and said, "'I thought it was just me. I'm so happy to learn other people have tedium tiaras too.'" TDM tiaras. I've never heard of that, but it's like an iconic... Concept tedium coming from The word tedious obviously being Like a task you don't really it takes a lot of effort You don't want to do it tedium tiaras Someone said I have one too but I didn't Know they were called tedium tiaras Someone else said is that a known Term or did you just coin it yourself Either way it's great and someone said I coined it myself It's been a long running joke with my mom And someone said I think you should trademark it As your own before someone else claims it and catches On you should start selling tiaras and make A bundle someone says as a 34 year old man I like to wear elf ears while I do chores. Being a dude doing dishes is boring, but everything is great when you're a magical being. (laughs) Someone said, I have an inflatable crown. I am the king and I'm taking care of my castle. Someone else says, everyone needs a tiara in their life. Fancy clothing is so empowering. It's all part of fake it till you make it. Sometimes you have to trick your brain. It's like, I'm so clinically depressed that I physically can't get out of bed. Puts on tiara. Thank goodness I'm a ruler of an empire. And I know that I have the strength of centuries of kings behind me to accomplish my goals, i.e. showering. And then someone said, I love this for us. So that was the first story I wanted to share. And now I feel compelled to get a tiara to do my housework. <laughs> okay, the next confession. It says, I am a judgmental hypocrite and I owe thousands of people an apology. Just what the title says. For too long, I've judged people on the choices they make. But in this case, I was so hilariously in the wrong that I had supposed to, to make amends. You see, for years, I've been talking mad shit about people who wear Crocs, how they've given up on life or how they bought chastity belts for their feet. (laughs) Which i've never heard of that but back to the post they say, you know Just the usual cheeky smartass stuff fast forward to a few months ago I'm going through a divorce and made the decision that i'm now romantically retired I visited my sister for christmas the whole family got crocs They're all in love and talking them up and that voice in my head that makes fun of people is like well You've given up too. So what have you got to lose? So I caved and got a pair guys I was wrong, hilariously wrong. These things are magical. They're like perfect little clouds for my feet and I never want to take them off. Just had to share. And I just died over this post because honestly, I've been a croc denier as well, or like a croc complainer as well throughout my life, but I got a pair as water shoes when I was on this road trip, and we went into like a a rather rocky sort of ravine as part of a hike, and honestly, the crocs saved me, and I still have them in my closet. I haven't worn them recently. I haven't really had a need to, but for various professions and just like life, crocs, they make sense. They're comfortable. They make sense. Someone commented and said, just imagine if you are wrong about the most trivial, insignificant thing... A.K. the Crocs, how many other things you could be wrong about? Maybe some really big stuff. And then the person that posted about the Crocs said, nah, I don't think so, <laughs> in response. And then someone else said, well, this is obviously a post written by one of my many Croc-loving friends and family. I've taunted over the years as a mere ploy to get me to cave. Never. So... I just thought that was good. The next one and the last one I'm gonna share that actually leads into today's longer story is a little bit deeper. This is the confession. It says, I like going to places I've never been because I don't want anyone to know me. I love anonymity and being in public in a place people know me makes me so anxious, even if it's just a few people I know from the area. I like walking around the street knowing that no one knows who I am and I'm never gonna see them again. I hate knowing people. I just want to live in my own world with people I choose, which is interesting, kind of like an oxymoron, being like, I love being places that no one knows me, but I want to live in my own world with people I choose. Like those people you choose do know you, I guess, but maybe not. Maybe they're just random people that you're choosing, like that you don't know to have in your life. But regardless, I thought this was very interesting because it really struck a chord with me as being someone who, you know, lives in New York City, a city of 8.4 six, eight million people as of 2021. Yes, I looked up a statistic. And yet, you know, of those eight million people, I've locked eyes. Like I've seen probably like 0.0005% of the population in my four years here. And I've known or spoken and interacted with probably 0.000005 percent of the population. And those are totally made up statistics, but you know what I'm saying here. You know what I'm trying to get at with that. And yet all this considered, you know, I felt comforted at times knowing that there's so many people so i'm not alone but those people are very focused on themselves and their work and their life people in new york like don't really give you the time of day until they do like they do when obviously when someone needs help new yorkers are very quick to jump to help like i've seen so many viral videos of people jumping down into the subway tracks to grab someone that fell like, there is heroism here. Like, people do go out of their way. They will speak to you sometimes, but most of the time, if it's just your mind and your own, people mind their own and just let you be. Like you could trip on a seam in the sidewalk and no one's going to talk about it. Like no one's going to, like if you don't fall flat on your face and need help, people are probably not even going to notice. It's not going to be the talk of the town. I can wear literally any outfit I want. I can wear my ratty pajama pants out to get a, a bagel and no one's going to comment on it. Like it's one of those things where you are pretty anonymous unless you're in certain parts of town, like Washington Square Park, people do those interviews now and you're like, you can be kind of caught in the spotlight for a moment. But most of the time, if you know where to walk in New York, you can completely blend in. And even when something embarrassing happens, it's not even as embarrassing, I don't think, even with all these people around. Maybe it's just like I've been here for four years, so I'm a bit jaded now. But this morning, I was walking back from CBS with one of those paper bags full of like a bunch of trash bags and tampons and like a lot of, I got a lot of just like household things and they were pretty heavy. So the bag actually broke from the bottom. And I wasn't even embarrassed because I scooped everything up really quickly. No one even had a chance to offer to help me because, like, I got it and no one even noticed, I don't think. And it wasn't embarrassing like my tampons were like on the ground. (laughs) And I was like, yep, okay, just another day. It's fine. Carry on. And no one even like batted an eye. And some people might be like, oh my God, that's so sad. But I love blending in. Like I really love it. So all this considered, really thinking about that last question that I just discussed, this really inspired today's story, which is a really, really interesting one. And it comes from this book. I'm going to read directly from this book that everyone needs to get on Amazon. I am so hooked on it. I'm a little over halfway through it, and I just can't put it down. Like, every night before bed, I read a chapter, and it really, really makes you think. It's called Humankind by Rutger Bregman, and Rutger is a 34-year-old Dutch historian and author, and he has published four books on history, philosophy, and economics, and Humankind, it's really good. Like, the goal of the book is to discuss moments in history that were painted as these really horrible things, and oftentimes were really horrible things, but... It's to overall dispel the widely held belief that humans are bad and selfish by nature. Like, human beings are by nature selfish. They're all, you know, selfish, self-interested, driven people. And we have no hope. Like, you know, history is going to continue to repeat itself because people are just selfish and bad. And it goes through really widely known and some not so widely known disasters and wars and conflicts and murders and things like that. And it talks about how, yeah, something bad happened, but it wasn't because of a large group of people being bad. Sometimes it's just one bad person and people just believe that person. And that's not out of being a bad person themselves. It's just they are gullible or they want to believe and things like that. So it's really interesting. Like it starts out with like a bad story, which is really, really sad or something. And then it ends up like the end of the chapter is, see, maybe it's not all what it seems. You know, maybe the media kind of ran with this and made us feel like humans are bad, bad, bad people, but maybe there are some good ones left and maybe we're not doomed, you know? So that's the book in a nutshell. That's my take on it. But the story I'm gonna be sharing today comes from this book and it's about a 28-year-old girl living in New York City, with a very eerily similar name to my own. So I have not forgotten this story since I read it in the book, and I just need to share it because the ending will surprise you. So if you guys have the book, turn to page 180. Wouldn't I be a great teacher? Honestly, (laughs) in another life, I think I would be a history teacher and like go get my master's and do all of that because you guys know how much I just love, love telling stories and learning. So it's on page 180 and I'm going to tell you guys a tale. From the words of Rutger Bregman, the Great, who I actually need to meet now. I've decided he's going to be at my dinner table. You know how you choose who you want to have dinner with? This guy. I Rutger can come to my dinner. Okay, setting the scene. So it is March 13th, 1964, and it's a quarter past three in the morning. Catherine Susan Genovese drives her red Fiat past the no parking sign just visible in the darkness and pulls up outside the Austin Street subway station kitty as everyone knows her is a whirlwind of energy so like i said her name is similar to mine kitty but katherine short for kitty which honestly makes me think maybe i should go by kitty in another phase of my life but Kitty is a whirlwind of energy. 28 years old, she's crazy about dancing and has more friends than free time. Kitty loves New York City and the city loves her. It's the place where she can be herself, the place where she is free. But that night, it's cold outside and Kitty is in a hurry to get home to her girlfriend. It's their first anniversary and all Kitty wants to do is cuddle up with her girlfriend, Marianne. Quickly switching off her lights and locking her car doors, she heads off towards their small apartment less than 100 feet away. What Kitty doesn't know is that this will be the final hour of her life. It's 3.18 in the morning. The screams pierce the night loud enough to wake the neighborhood. Oh my god, he stabbed me! Help me! In several apartments, lights flick on. Windows are raised and the voices murmur in the night. One calls out, ''Let that girl alone!'' But Kitty's attacker returns for the second time he stabs her with his knife. Stumbling around the corner, she cries out, "I'm dying. Nobody comes outside. Nobody lifts a finger to help." Instead, dozens of neighbors peer through their windows as though they're watching a reality show. One couple pulls up some chairs and dims the lights to get a clearer view. This is just chilling. They pulled up chairs, like, might as well get the popcorn. Like, what a fucked up situation. When the attacker returns for a third time, he finds her lying at the foot of a stairwell just inside her apartment building. Upstairs, Marianne, who's Kitty's girlfriend, sleeps on, unaware. Kitty's attacker stabs her again and again. It's 3.50 a.m. when the first call comes into the police station. The caller is a neighbor who spent a long time deliberating what to do. Deliberating what to do? Wouldn't your first inclination be to get your phone and call 911? Like, you're locking your door first, maybe, and then, or making sure your door is locked. Your door should always be locked. And then calling 911. Like, I don't understand. So officers arrive on the scene within two minutes, but it's too late. I didn't want to get involved the caller admits to the police. Those six words, I didn't wanna get involved, reverberated around the globe. Initially, Kitty's death was one of the 636 murders committed in New York City that year, so 1964. A life cut short, a love lost, and the city moved on. But two weeks later, the story made it into the papers, and in time, Kitty's murder would make it into the history books. Not because of the killer or the victim, but because of the spectators, the, I didn't want to get involved of it all. So the media took this story and ran with it. On Good Friday, so March 27th, 1964, this is the headline in the front page of the New York Times. It said, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. And the article opened with the following lines, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens I don't know how it went from 37 to 38, but regardless, watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. So Kew Gardens was the complex, the neighborhood, that's what it was called. Kitty could still have been alive, the story said. As one detective put it, a phone call would have done it. From Great Britain to Russia and from Japan to Iran, Kitty became big news. Here was proof, reported one Soviet newspaper, of capitalism's jungle morals which I've never heard of this concept jungle morals but I guess it kind of means like survival of the fittest like if you're in a jungle and you have to survive like a plane crash or something we've seen this happen in history but american society had become quote as sick as the one that crucified Jesus preached to Brooklyn minister, while one columnist condemned his countrymen as a callous, chicken-hearted, and immoral people. So media crews and, you know, people from TV and photographers, all sorts of people swarmed the area where this happened, Kew Gardens, and they couldn't believe it. They're like, this is such a neat, nice, respectable neighborhood. Like, how could residents of a place like this display such complete and horrifying apathy the book says. It was the dulling effect of television, claimed one. No, it was feminism that had turned men into wimps, said another. Others thought that it typified the anonymity of big city life. Like I said, you know, you can be kind of invisible here if you want to be. And wasn't it reminiscent of the Germans after the Holocaust, said another. They too had claimed ignorance. We had no idea. But most widely accepted was the analysis furnished by Abe Rosenthal, who was editor at the New York Times and a leading journalist of his generation. He said, what happened in the apartments and houses on Austin Street was a symptom of a terrible reality in the human condition. When it comes down to it, we're alone. But guys, like I said, what if okay, all this considered, what if this isn't the full story? Like, what if this is just what the media and people wanted everyone to believe about the story? Like, what if a completely different thing happened entirely and this is just how things are being painted? So skipping a few pages, the moral of this story seemed clear. Why didn't anyone come to Kitty's aid? Well, because people are callous and indifferent. Quote from the New York Times article. But when Rutger Bregman, author of the book, started doing some research into the actual circumstances surrounding Kitty's death, he found himself on the trail of a whole different story. The real story. Biblaton and John Darley were two young psychologists at the time. Biblaton, what an interesting name. It's like B-I-B-B-L-A-T-A-N-E. So These two young psychologists have been studying what bystanders do in emergencies and noticed something strange. Not long after Kitty's murder, they decided to try an experiment on the bystander effect, the bystanders of it all. And their subjects were unsuspecting college students who were asked to sit alone in a closed room and just chat about college life with some of their peers over an intercom. Except there were no other students The researchers instead played a pre-recorded audio tape. So to give you a visual, it's one student sitting in a room by themselves and through this like intercom system, they think that they're talking to someone else, but really they're just hearing a recording. And the audio tape essentially said things along the lines of like, I could really use some help. Someone please help me. Like it's a lot of choking sounds and like someone clearly struggling in this recording. Like, can someone help me? I'm going to die. That's what it said. So they played this recording for the students that were in the study. And what happened next? Well, when a trial subject alone, they were sitting there alone, heard the cries for help, they rushed out to help into the corridor. They were trying to figure out where the source of the screaming was, and they tried to help this fictional person, thinking that they were real. All of them, without exception, like every single one of these test subjects that were alone listening to this recording, ran outside to help. But Among those who were led to believe that five other students were sitting in rooms nearby, so it wasn't just them, like hearing this, like other kids somewhere were also hearing this, only 62% of people took action because they thought, oh, you know, someone else will do it. I don't want to be the one to do it. I don't want to get involved. Other kids are hearing this too. Maybe they're going to help. So the psychologist's findings would be among the most pivotal contributions made to social psychology, says Rutger. Over the next 20 years, more than thousands of articles and books were published on how bystanders behave in emergencies. And these results also explained why those 38 witnesses in Kitty's murder didn't do anything. Like maybe if Kitty had been attacked in a corridor with one other person nearby, that person would have done something. But because there were so many people witnessing what was going on, maybe that's actually what killed her. The fact that everyone thought someone else was going to do something. You know? But again, this isn't the full story. I'm gonna tell you guys the actual story of what happened next, according to Rutger and his research. So his research actually comes from another guy's research to be. Clear here. And his name is Joseph DeMay. And Joseph actually, 10 years after the murder, moved to Kew Gardens, so the place where the murder happened. And he was an amateur historian, but was super interested in what actually went down. So he decided to do some research on his own. So he started to go through the archives, turned up all these pictures and old newspaper clippings and reports. And he actually, really alone, with maybe some help from other people, but mostly on his own, put together the actual sequence of events and what actually happened. So let's take it again from the top, the story of Kitty, the actual events that unfolded. So it's 3:19 AM and a horrifying scream breaks the silence on Austin street, but it's cold outside and most residents have their windows shut. The street is poorly lit. Most people who look outside don't notice anything odd. And a few people make out a figure running down the street but this isn't extremely odd because they just assume she's drunk there's a bar just up the street. This has happened before, you know, like drunk people running and doing weird things. Nevertheless, Rutger says, at least two residents pick up the phone and call the police. So two people called the police. One of them is the father of Michael Hoffman, who would later join the force himself. And the other is Hattie Grund, who lives in an apartment nearby. And they said, we already got the calls. So the police were fully aware and got two phone calls, yet they didn't come. Why didn't they tear out of the station sirens blaring to figure out what's going on? Well, based on those first calls, the dispatcher may have assumed that this was a marital situation, like a marital dispute. And Hoffman, so Michael Hoffman was the, the guy whose father called. He now retired from the force thinks that that is why they were so slow to come. Like they thought that husband and wife were fighting. And back in those days, like this was something where spousal rape wasn't even a criminal offense, which is just bonkers. This is the 60s. But what about those 38 eyewitnesses that were talked about in the papers? This notorious number, which would later turn up in everything from songs to plays to blockbusters, bestsellers, comes from a list of all the people that were questioned in the case by police. And the vast majority of the names on that list were not even eyewitnesses. At most they'd heard something, but some hadn't even woken up at all. So there were two clear exceptions, which is important to note. So the first one, the first person that saw the attack and didn't do anything was Joseph Fink, who was a neighbor in the building. He was this old, solitary man who was known to loudly hate Jewish people. He was very anti-Semitic. I don't know if Kitty was Jewish. Maybe she was, but he was just this old kind of cruel man and he was wide awake when all this happened. He saw the first attack. He did nothing. And the second person who didn't do anything but saw it was Carl Ross, who was actually friends with Kitty and Marianne, but he panicked and he told police he didn't want to get involved. But what he meant was he didn't want publicity because he was really drunk that night and he was afraid it would come out that he was gay. And homosexuality was strictly illegal in those days. So Ross was terrified of the police and the papers like the New York Times that stigmatized homosexuality as this dangerous disease. And in 1964, when this happened, gay men were still routinely brutalized by police and the paper regularly portrayed homosexuality as this plague. And Abe Rosenthal, in particular, the guy who actually wrote the article on Kitty for the New York Times, was a notorious homophobe. Like, notorious. And not long before Kitty's murder, he actually published another piece called Growth of Overt Homosexuality in City Provokes Wide Concern. So, just so you know. Of course, none of this excuses Carl Ross's negligence. Like, even if he was drunk and scared, he should have done more to help his friend. But instead, he did something. He called another friend and then, That person urged him to call the cops, but he didn't want to from his own apartment, so he climbed over the roof to his neighbor's house, and she woke up the woman who lived next door to her. So he did do something, but he probably has been beating himself up for the rest of his life over not calling himself, you know? I can't imagine that, like, what that does to a person, so let's not be too hard on him. So the woman, Sophia Farrar, she's the woman that was woken up, that lives next door to the neighbor, that the guy went and got. Doesn't really matter the sequence, but Sophia, she woke up and she heard the news that Kitty was laying somewhere bleeding downstairs after being brutally hurt, injured. She didn't know if she was going to, you know, what the extent was, but she heard that this thing happened. And Sophia did not hesitate for a second. She heard the news. She ran out of the apartment. Her husband was calling after her, still pulling his trousers on and she didn't care. She sprinted to the scene, not even caring if the murderer was still there. Like she just knew she had to get there to help Kitty. When she opened Opened the door to the stairwell where Kitty lay. The murderer was gone, thankfully, but Sophia put her arms around her friend and Kitty relaxed for a moment, leaning into her. This, then, is how Catherine Susan Genovese, aka Kitty, really died, wrapped in her neighbor's embrace. It would have made such a difference to my family, Kitty's brother Bill said when he first heard this version of events, if they'd known that Kitty died in the arms of her friend. Like, they had to find out 10 years later that Kitty was not ignored by 38 people and died alone in a pool of her own blood. Like, there was someone there holding her in her final moments, and they didn't know that because the the papers ran with this story. So why was Sophia forgotten this neighbor that went into the night not knowing what she was going to encounter to hug her friend as she died? Why was she forgotten? Why was this story left out of the articles and the history books? The truth is pretty disheartening. According to her son, he says, my mom spoke to one woman from a newspaper back then, but then the article appeared the next day and it said that Sophia hadn't wanted to get involved, which is a blatant lie. Sophia was furious when she read the piece and swore never to speak to a journalist again. She's like, I'm fed up, I was misquoted, and that's just not what happened. Sophia wasn't the only one. In fact, dozens of Kew Garden residents complained that their words were getting twisted by the press and many of them wound up moving out of the area journalists meanwhile kept dropping by on march 11th two days before the first anniversary of kitty's death one reporter get this this is the craziest thing i've ever read one reporter thought it would be a good joke to go to Kew gardens and scream bloody murder in the middle of the night oh i have no words for this photographers stood with their cameras ready to capture residents reactions the whole situation seemed insane In the same years that activism began brewing in New York City, Martin Luther King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize that millions of Americans began marching in the streets and that Queens counted more than 200 community organizations. The press developed this obsession with what it trumpeted as an epidemic of indifference, but it's lies. Oh, my gosh. There was one reporter or journalist rather, a radio reporter named Danny Meenan, who was skeptical of the story from about the disinterested bystanders. Like he was, he didn't believe it. But when he checked the facts, he found that most of the eyewitnesses thought they had seen a drunken woman that night. These people really thought like, oh, this person's just drunk. They didn't know anything was wrong. If they'd known something was wrong, they would have done something probably. They just thought this woman was staggering around because she was intoxicated. So when Meenan asked this reporter at the New York Times why they neglected to say that, his answer was it would have ruined the story. Oh my God. So why did Mean keep this to himself? Like even this guy, why didn't he say anything? Self-preservation. In those days, no lone journalist would go head to head with the world's most powerful newspaper, New York Times, not if they wanted to keep their job. So Rucker says it's shocking how little of the original story actually holds up. On that fateful night, it wasn't ordinary New Yorkers, but the authorities who failed. Kitty didn't die alone, but in the arms of a friend. And when it comes down to it, the presence of bystanders has precisely the opposite effect of what science has long insisted. We're not alone in the big city, on the subway, on the crowded streets. We have each other. And this paragraph alone just, it sent shivers down my spine because it's true. Like, the facts are the facts. And it took 10 years for them to figure this out. And Kitty's story doesn't end there. There was one final bizarre twist. Five days after Kitty's death, so back in 1964, Raul Cleary, a Queens resident, noticed a stranger in his street. He was coming out of a neighbor's house in broad daylight carrying a TV set, which is an odd sight. You know, this random dude carrying a TV set out of an apartment that isn't his. Like it does signal alarm bells if you know your neighbors. So Raul stopped him and the man claimed to be a mover. But he was suspicious and phoned a neighbor, Jack Brown. And Raul asked Jack, hey, are the banisters moving? And Brown said, absolutely not. The men didn't hesitate. While Jack disabled the vehicle, Raul called the police. So the two guys worked together. And the cops came to arrest the burglar the moment he reemerged. Just hours later, the man confessed, not only to breaking and entering, taking the TV, but also to the murder of a young woman in Kew Gardens. Oh. Shivers. That's right. Kitty's murderer was apprehended thanks to the intervention of two bystanders. Not a single newspaper reported on it. This is the real story of Kitty Genovese. It's a story that ought to be required reading, not only for first-year psych students, but also for aspiring journalists. And that's because it teaches us three things. One, how out of whack our view of human nature often is. Two, how deftly journalists pushed those buttons to sell sensational stories. And last but not least, how it's precisely in emergencies that we can count on each other. Chills, chills, chills. Rucker Bregman, thank you for telling this story because I'd actually somehow, I think, In one of my various subjects in school, I had heard a story like this about how bystanders, like I've heard about the bystander effect where people say like, oh, if people think there's another person around, like they might not be the one to do something. Like they might be like, oh, this person will take care of it. I don't want to like take the spotlight or potentially... You know, fuck up, honestly. Like, there's been moments where I've seen something bad happen. And if I don't see someone else jump in, obviously, like, I would do something. But if someone else, you know, it's if someone else is already handling it, maybe it's best that I don't, or like things like that. Like, I've certainly been in situations like that. But stories like this make me realize that help goes a long way. And that even if you see someone doing something, maybe you should also step in if they need support. Like, one person tackling a dire situation, I mean, if you feel safe enough to do so, like, I will now step in more often than not or than i would have before after reading this story honestly in a dire situation if people fully know the extent of what's going on or don't even but just know that someone is struggling like this person is clearly not a drunk person like once a few people realized like oh and it wasn't even 38 people it was like a few people that noticed maybe two people didn't do anything or the one guy who was a racist didn't do anything and then the other person who was you know in the closet or didn't want to be ridiculed by the press for being gay Maybe he didn't outrightly do something on his own, but he did contact someone who contacted someone who contacted Sophia, and Sophia ended up running to Kitty's aid and held her as she died. So that was something. And two, actually called the authorities, but they didn't come. And most people were literally asleep, like didn't know, but- It goes to show that, yeah, we aren't all alone in this big city, like in these emergency situations that we actually can count on each other. Like someone falls down into the subway, someone runs or jumps down. Like I've seen so many videos like this where people jump down and together hoist the guy out of the subway tracks. Or obviously there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of bad things that happen. And sometimes it's too late to help. But if you see something, do something, you know, it's that easy. But also the media likes to run with a sensational story that makes people sound bad because it's, you know, there's a lot to talk about in that way. Like, oh, humans are bad? Let's talk about it. Like, people, you open your newspaper or your New com and you see all these terrible, terrible stories. And it's something that people talk about. Like, oh, did you hear that crazy thing that happened? But people are actually much better than we think. Like, the human condition. Is it all that bad? I don't know. Anyway, that was a few pages from humankind by Rutger bregman this book you guys need to get it it's on amazon i'll have it linked in the show notes everything else i talked about linked in the show notes but what are your thoughts on the bystander effect like i want to hear your thoughts dm me let me know what you guys think about this and rest in peace kitty genovese i am so sorry that this happened to you but i'm glad that they found the killer and that sophia was there to hold her as she died like that It makes you feel a little bit better about the situation, even though it's so, so tragic. But thank you guys for listening to this episode of Thick and Thin. I'll be back next Thursday to tell some more stories from history and just chat with you guys. Thank you for your support, and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye.